Chapter 6 of Dog Watches at Sea This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King Chapter 6 A Starving Lime Juicer During my few visits to the ruby with ironwork from the blacksmith shop, I had the opportunity of becoming acquainted with the crew. The captain, a native of Norway, whose name was Olsen, wore a large piece of blue ribbon in the buttonhole of his coat. He was known to be a temperance man, and for being so strict an abstainer was nicknamed Joe Water. Mr. Moore, the mate, was a rugged old chap with gray curly locks and beard resembling Santa Claus. He was a true shellback. He had followed the sea all his life and had served in every position on board ship. He had seen better days. Although for years master of large East India men, he was now in old age glad to make the best of it as mate on an old hooker like this. The colored cook, who was both cook and steward with the captain and mate, were the only occupants of the after end of the ship. Three able seamen, Mike, a native of Ireland, Frank, who hailed from Germany, and Edgar, a negro from the west coast of Africa, with Harry and Moses, two strapping young ordinary seamen, comprised the whole of the forward crowd. As soon as I reached the deck, the old mate came up to me, and in a fatherly way advised me to go on shore again. Look at me, he said. See what an old sailor is like, an old sailor, an old dog. Seeing that I was not willing to take his advice, he jumped on the wharf, and seizing one end of my clothes chest, which was on a cart there, called me to get hold of the other end. We got the chest aboard, and all the way to the forecastle door, this ancient mariner, mumbling in an undertone, repeated to himself these two lines. Rattle his bones all over the stones. He's only a pauper that nobody owns. Once in the forecastle, I slipped into a suit of working clothes and went below into the hold of the ship, where I found the mate and sailors trimming the stone ballast which had been dumped down the main hatch. My work of moving the stones from the heap in the hatchway and carrying them out to the wings of the ship was interrupted by the darky cook, who, bending his head over the hatch combings, shouted, Dinner below! I had always eaten in the cabin during my few trips to sea, where the food had been served in a reasonably clean manner. But now, on reaching the deck, I saw Moses go to the galley and take two large pans to the forecastle. One pan contained junks of boiled beef, the other soup. On placing the pans on the floor of the forecastle, the men formed a circle around them, 
each man taking his turn at holding the beef with one hand, while with the other he cut off what he wanted with his sheath knife. Then bailing the soup from the large pan with a small tin spoon, he filled his tin dish and moved away to eat his meal. In a locker in one corner of the forecastle, a square box, known as the bread barge, was kept. It was filled with hard biscuit, and of all the biscuits I have seen aboard ships, these were certainly the hardest. They were about four inches in diameter and fully an inch thick, and almost as hard as a bit of soft pine wood. So full of weevils were they that when soaked in the soup or in the bootleg coffee served us, we could skim the former off the top by the spoonful. The combings of the main hatch were used by the men as their dining place and as each man made his way on deck, he would help himself to the bread in the barge, then taking a spare belaying pin, or using the corners of the hatch, he would break the Liverpool pantiles into bits. It had not occurred to me that a pot, pan, and spoon were the principal articles of a sailor's outfit. Therefore I waited until the first man had finished, and then borrowed his. So I ate my first meal on board this ship. The towboat was waiting to take hold of us, and thus there was no time for me to buy these much-needed articles. We let go our lines, and in about an hour's time dropped anchor in the sound at the mouth of the channel, awaiting a favorable wind. The cook of the ruby had died at sea on the way to Bermuda, and the present cook had been taken from the forecastle to do the duties of cook, which consisted in keeping a fire in the galley as there was very little to cook. He, hearing that I was in need of a pot, pan, and spoon, and also that I had forgotten to provide a donkey's breakfast, came forward and bargained to sell me his forecastle outfit for one pound and ten shillings. I had only eighteen shillings. So, as though he were doing me a special favor, he sold me his donkey's breakfast, a leather belt, a sheath and knife, and a pot, pan, and spoon for my little store of money. I believe I could have bought a new outfit in Hamilton for half the sum, but not knowing the ropes, I must pay for experience. For two days we waited for a favorable wind. At last it came, a stiff nor'wester. The windlass brakes were shipped, up one side and down the other, and the slack chain was gathered in. She's short, sir, brought the captain's command to loose the topsails and foresail. Here was my opportunity to show what I could do aloft. Up I went on the mainmast, and from yardarm to yardarm. I cast off the gaskets as quickly as Moses did on the foremast, and won the admiration of all. The lower topsails were sheeted home, the upper ones mastheaded, a few more heaves on the old windlass brakes, and we were running with square yards along the north shore of Bermuda, 
bound out to sea. During the two days we had been at anchor in the Sound, we were visited twice by two corporals of an English regiment. They came alongside in a government steam launch and desired to search our vessel. A soldier was missing, and he was suspected of being hidden in our ship. They overhauled every part of the vessel, and after a second search, left, convinced that he was not on board. We were no sooner clear of the pilot than a wretched-looking mortal made his appearance on deck. He was not only miserable from the effects of seasickness, but was almost black with dirt from the bottom of the ship, where he had been hiding for three days under the stone ballast. Until the coal dust had been brushed from his clothes, you could not have dreamed he had on the uniform of an English soldier. Mike and the two ordinary seamen were responsible for his being on board. They had met the soldier while on a visit to the barracks, and had promised to conceal him. In the night they dug an opening in the forward end of the ballast, and placed by the side of the keelson two empty beef barrels. Taking the heads out of the barrels, they made a tunnel into which the soldier crawled feet foremost. Then, placing a bottle of water and a few pantiles in his safe retreat, they barricaded the entrance so that it looked like other parts of the ballast. But the stones were so thrown together that a current of air might pass through them. The corporals had walked over his hiding place without suspecting that he was buried beneath their feet. He had expected to be in concealment one day only, but unfortunately the adverse winds kept him cramped and hungry for three. As the pilot left the ship, Mike went below, and removing the stones from the mouth of the barrel, set the soldier free. Captain Olson appeared as though he were annoyed, but we knew he was glad to have the man on board. We were then one hand short, and here was an opportunity to have the labor of a man for nothing. Bill, the English soldier, worked hard, but with the exception of a few old clothes the old man gave him, left the ship at Antwerp destitute. We welcomed him, for after his seasickness left him, his Irish wit made him the life of the ship and brought him into favor with all on board. There were two empty bunks against the side of the partition dividing the galley from the forecastle. I had the upper and Bill the lower one. He had no bed, but with a coil of old junk for a pillow and the contents of the shakings barrel spread out on his bunk boards, he made a comfortable doss for himself. The ruby had been in cold weather crossing the Atlantic and also in Bermuda. But now that we were away to the southward where it was warmer, the night disturbers began to annoy us. The second night it was impossible for me to sleep. I thought the small things crawling over me were water bugs. But, no longer able to endure the misery of being eaten alive, I lighted the forecastle lamp, and, to my horror, 
not only were my clothes and bed alive with bedbugs, but they seemed to play peekaboo in the cracks of the wooden partition. Far preferable is the death of being torn quickly to pieces by tigers to being slowly eaten alive by bedbugs. That night Bill and I slept on deck, and our bunks were too warm for us. The rest of the men were too far from the heated partition of the galley to be disturbed. But the next night all hands slept on deck and gave the bugs full control of the place. In the morning every donkey's breakfast was taken out of the forecastle and the place given a thorough cleaning with potash and hot water. My donkey's breakfast, bought of the colored cook, had to be thrown over the side. I hated to part with it till upon opening the tick I saw the wood shavings with which it was filled alive with vermin. Then I gladly committed them to the deep. Although we scrubbed and cleaned, still there were vermin. They were in the clothing and beds. They were everywhere. Until weeks afterward, when we sailed into cooler weather, there was no rest inside the forward house. On the eighth day out, we sighted the coast of Haiti, and the following afternoon brought our ship to anchor in Aquin Bay. This is a mere anchorage. The town is situated about two miles from the sea at the end of a V-shaped bay. There are no docks or wharves. Along the shore stacks of logwood were piled up ready to be conveyed in lighters to the ships. Three French barks were riding at anchor, loading logwood. These seemed clean and neat aloft, very different from our old, poverty-stricken, patched-up wash-tub. Shortly after coming to anchor, the boat was lowered, and Moses and I were detailed by the mate to row the old man on shore. As we neared the shore, we jumped aft at the last stroke of the oars, which raised her bow and let her slide well up on the mud. While the captain was gone in search of his agents, we had a chance to see the town, three or four pathways between rows of native huts, plenty of half-naked negroes speaking a dialect which was a mixture of French and Spanish, and an open square where the natives sold their produce. This was the town of Aquin. Small herds of huge black pigs that had no visible owners could be seen in every so-called street. Grunting and squealing, they ran from place to place for filth to eat, for they were the scavengers of the place. Near our landing place was a wooden house filled with soldiers who were continually beating a drum. It matters not where a sailor may be, there will also be someone to sell him rum. Moses had eight shillings belonging to the old mate, who wanted liquor in exchange. These native soldiers soon understood what he meant when he showed them the money and raised his hand to his mouth as though in the act of drinking, 
for in a few moments they returned with four filled bottles. We shoved the boat off and pulled for the ship, hoping to return before the captain wanted us. But on reaching her, the mate began to drink freely, and in a short time, mate, cook, and all hands had emptied the bottles and were forgetful of all troubles and cares. I confess that I joined in and forced myself to drink with them and to accept the gift of the mate. I knew it was wrong, but it seemed that the more I could drink and swear like the others, the more of a sailor I would be. Next morning I listened to the men relating to each other the story of the old man's coming aboard in a boat belonging to a French bark and finding all hands drunk. If there was any real goodness in our captain, it was in keeping sober. But everybody thought him too stingy to drink. It was known that he owned the greater part of the vessel, and to be saving, kept her in a wretched state, besides half-starving his men. The mate seemed much depressed. He had been severely censured for his night's debauch, and tried with a will to redeem the past by working like a slave, getting the stone ballast into the lighters alongside the ship. At breakfast, the cook told me the captain wanted me aft. On reaching the cabin, I received a lecture on temperance and the meaning of the blue ribbon in his coat. I felt ashamed while in his presence, but forward among the men all feelings of shame left me, and I again fell in with my surroundings. In less than a week the ballast was gone, and the ship's hold ready for logwood. Saw horses and buck saws, which had been bought in Bermuda, were brought on deck, a stage was rigged over the side, and the work of loading began. Labor was cheap, and for a small sum, natives could easily have been hired to load the ship. The crew might have been well employed in the rigging. But no, the captain was too mean to hire, so we were forced to do the loading. Two men in the lighter passed up the sticks of logwood, to the two on the stage. These in turn passed them on the rail for the two ordinary seamen and myself to carry to the main hatch and drop below. Whenever we came to a crooked stick, it was laid on deck, and during the time there was no lighter alongside, we were busy sawing these crooked pieces and stowing the cargo below. The straighter the sticks, the more the ship could hold. From the time we took on board our first lighter of logwood until about half across the western ocean, we were forever in fear of being bitten by the many scorpions, centipedes, and tarantulas which had been brought in the decayed sticks of logwood. They got into the forecastle and the running rigging which was stopped to the shrouds, Indeed, they were in every corner of the ship. No one, not even Edgar the colored sailor, who did not mind a few bedbugs, could sleep in the forecastle. 
Bill the stowaway, with the three A.B.'s, slept on the forecastle head, while Harry, Moses, and I bunked on top of the forward house. For six weeks we rode at anchor in Aquin Bay, sleeping on deck and finding in the morning the only dry spots were those where our bodies had rested. The heavy dew wet our dungarees through. At half-past five we were called. We would then wring out our clothes, drink a pot of colored water called coffee, have a smoke, and wait for four bells to strike. This was followed by the word, Turn to, from the mate. At breakfast time our clothes had become partly dry, but as soon as we began to handle the logwood sticks passed up from the bottom of the lighter, where they had rested in a foot of water, they of course would be as wet as ever again. When I think of those days, it seems a mystery that no one was made sick, for we spent them wet through by the water dripping from the logwood, and at night we were covered with the heavy dew. One night, shortly after I had stretched myself on the forward house, I heard Mike shouting, Oh, kill me before I die. He ran aft, and walking abaft the cabin, I saw the mate quieting him by giving him the contents of a bottle. It must have been the worst kind of chain lightning, rum, for Mike drank, choked, fell, and groaned himself to sleep. He had been bitten by a scorpion. Next day his arm was swollen, but with warm applications he was soon able to resume his work. Shortly before we sailed, Edgar began to shout and yell with pain, howling like a dog who had seen a ghost. He, too, had felt the piercing needle in a scorpion's tail, and again the old mate's rum proved a ready relief. Every night we swept the decks and made a careful search for insects before lying down to sleep. After we had reached cool weather on the mid-Atlantic, we got into a heavy gale and shoveled the dead insects, which had been washed out of the logwood secured on the top of the main hatch, into the sea. Even then, on going below, we turned over our beds and hunted for scorpions and centipedes. The grub, or food, on shipboard is one of the chief factors in a sailor's life. The saying is, an old sailor, an old growl. Well, I believe a sailor has a right to growl. And as a rule, the more he growls, the more he will work. It makes no difference how wretched his last ship may have been, what poor food or how much abuse he may have received. His conversation at every growl is a eulogy on the virtues of that last ship and the good times he had on her. This, even though she may have been a Yankee slave-driver, or a starving lime-juicer. The few months I was on this ship, I existed on the bare pound and pint of the British Board of Trade. 
At almost every meal I joined in with the crew in a good all-round growl. Not only was the captain blessed to the skies, but the whole board of trade, every ship owner, and every man who owned a nail in a ship. Every Sunday morning we were mustered aft to the cabin door. There the captain watched the cook as he weighed to each man a separate pound of sugar and a pound of butter, his whack for a week. Our allowance of tea and coffee was weighed in one lot and kept by the steward, who had to use ingenuity to make it last the week. Pea soup and salt pork, and very little of it, was our bill of fare one day. The next we had salt horse and duff, flour boiled in grease, skimmed from the meat. Our breakfast consisted of a Liverpool hook-pot of black coffee and a good supply of pantiles. At night, more pantiles with a pot of tea was all we were given for supper. You could have seen our anchor in fifteen fathoms of this tea. No meat for breakfast or supper. The allowance for the day was barely enough for the noonday meal. My teeth were strong, so having an abundance of Liverpool pantiles, I grew fat and strong. A sailor's bunk is his sanctum sanctorum. He not only sleeps there, but puts up shelves and nails canvas pockets to the head or foot of it, where he keeps his fork, spoon, pot, and pan, and whatever trinkets he may possess. It is the only place on board ship where he can feel absolutely out of the way of others. The crew of the ruby kept their sugar and butter in their bunks, and woe to the man caught stealing his shipmate's whack. My butter and sugar never lasted longer than Wednesday. Frank could make his hold out till Friday, but during the last two days of the week, everyone was forced to drink the bootleg coffee and wretched tea without sugar and eat the pantiles without a taste of butter. There was no milk on board, not even in the cabin, and although the mate and cook were not on their allowance, still, too, they growled for more food. It may seem strange to some seamen when I tell of our freedom with the mate. He was a fatherly old fellow, whose weakness was drink. We all liked and respected him, and we knew he could not help us or himself. Being well on in years, he did what he must to hold his position, and made the best of a bad matter. I came to consider it a treat if at the close of a day's work the colored cook gave me some skimmed pork grease. I would put a layer of this between two pantiles and bake them in the galley oven to eat with my tea. Our ship was not only parish rigged but fed far worse than a parish almshouse i remember one evening i saw a part of a loaf of bread floating past 
it had drifted down from a french bark and heedless of sharks or anything else i was over the side and swam for it though soaked with salt water it tasted heavenly to me it was the first bit of soft bread i had eaten since coming on board we had very little salt beef or pork and as none could be bought in Aquin, our stock had to be preserved for sea use captain olson saved considerable in this boat for he fed us on shin bones from the haitian market boiled bones with a bit of the very toughest beef attached made our diet and except on sundays and thursdays when a few yams or sweet potatoes were served in lieu of duff there was no change in the miserable board of trade scale we got what the articles called for the allowance of beef pork peas flour tea coffee pepper salt and vinegar but having no scope for variety nor skill in cooking our diet was not only meagre but wretchedly monotonous this treatment culminated in a mutiny the story of which i will leave for another chapter end of chapter six